to right. me, the perfect morning routine, like it confuses me a lot. <laughs> I know, it just yeah. confuses me from really, I'll just call it from like a biochemical standpoint, from a cognitive standpoint, from a, from a behavioral standpoint, like you can make arguments. My guest today is Dr. Trevor Cashy. Dr. Cashy earned his bachelor's degree in biochemistry at the ripe age of 17 and his doctorate in biochemistry when he was just 21. Through his company, Trevor Cashy Nutrition, he's been developing a foundation of life-altering methods in his kickstart program to make people the fittest, strongest, healthiest version of themselves. His website boasts hundreds of testimonials on his nutrition and behavioral change methods, and you'll see after this conversation why so many people have benefited from his teachings. He's a profound human and an articulate conversationalist who motivates anyone who interacts with him to think on a much deeper level. I explored my own way of thought during this conversation, and that's just one of the many reasons why I loved this one. And I know that you will too, so please enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Momentus. Momentus specializes in sports nutrition products that are designed to optimize your active life. They're trusted by experts like Dr. Andrew Huberman, Dr. Kelly Starrett, and over 150 professional and collegiate sports teams. Momentus takes pride in having the highest quality ingredients that are backed by rock-solid science. If you're still questioning their track record, just know that over 72% of NFL teams consistently purchase product from Momentus for their athletes. When you're ready to grab some of the highest quality products on the market, go to livemomentous.com, spelled out, that's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S.com, and use the code DOSE, D-O-S-E, at checkout to get 15% off. Again, that's livemomentous.com. Use the code DOSE at checkout to get 15% off your entire purchase. This episode is also sponsored by BetterHelp. Let me tell you, the pandemic was a strange time filled with anxiety and confusion for a lot of us. For me, being cooped up in my house and having to work with COVID patients made me an anxious mess at times. I didn't feel like I had anywhere to go, so I looked into virtual therapy and I found BetterHelp. They partnered me up with a therapist that fit my needs, and I had massive benefit from my very first visit. So if you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or overwhelmed, today's sponsor, BetterHelp, is here to help you. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private, online environment at your convenience. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000-plus therapist network that gives you access to help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions, plus you can exchange unlimited messages and everything you share is completely confidential. You can request a new therapist at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Right now, you can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com Dalton. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Dalton, D-A-L-T-O-N. So quit waiting around. Go get some help, people. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. This episode is also sponsored by 8sleep. And my God, do I love 8sleep. I've been sleeping on their pod cover and absolutely loving it. The human race is sleeping less now than any other time in the last century. And 8sleep technology is here to change that. For optimal sleep... Your core temperature should fluctuate across sleep cycles to ensure deep rest, but it depends on the room temperature, your diet, exercise, along with many other factors. Their pod and pod cover products adjust your temperature automatically based on your personal preferences to provide you with the best sleep. One of my favorite features is the alarm. 
It will gently vibrate my side of the bed awake instead of listening to a loud startling alarm on my phone that wakes me up. It's also perfect for couples because of their dual system. My wife prefers hot and I prefer cold. No problem because our cover is set to keep my side bone chilling cold, which is my preference, and hers nice and cozy warm. We both sleep better in the comfort of our own temperatures. So if you want the best night's sleep of your life, you've got to try 8sleep. Go to 8sleep.com, that's spelled out E-I-G-H-T-S-L-E-E-P.com, and you can use my code DALTON at checkout to get $50 off your order. They're constantly running deals, which you can stack on top of my code to get even more of a discount. Just use my name, Dalton, D-A-L-T-O-N, at checkout to get $50 off your 8sleep pod or pod cover and enjoy the best night's sleep of your life. All right, Dr. Trevor Cashy, I would love if you would entertain my thoughts here. I'd love to take some some Cashy-isms from some of your your Twitter, your tweets, oh, and kind of run with those because I know that in that short format, it's hard to elaborate. And I, you know, doing my research for this conversation, I've I've really enjoyed the way that you are able to elaborate on on language. And so, one of the tweets that really struck me, you said, in previous eras. You could get accidental exercise by doing almost anything. But today we have a culture where exercise has turned into a hassle. I would love for you to elaborate on that. And I also would like to follow that with um, some some interesting takeaways that I've had with with uh, patients who are in their 90s and 100s and, and exercise around that. So if you could please elaborate on that on that statement a little bit. Very cool. So we can start. We'll start with a few of the terms, uh, particularly hassle. I more or less use hassle as an umbrella term for something to avoid. And from a a learning perspective, we tend to avoid things because exposure to them either equals or leads to an aversive consequence, something that, again, we want to get away from. And when I talk about the age and the culture, et cetera, I more or less make make, make a sort of ludic reference to technology where a lot of things that us humans did in days gone by, we used human power, literally. We, we, and then since the advent of tools, whenever that officially happened, where I mostly just define a tool as a man-made thing or an animal-made thing that, that multiplies outputs in comparison to the input, So I do one and I get more than one out of it, kind of, okay? Or multiplies whatever work you put in. You can call it leverage, whatever. It has a lot of metaphorical sort of descriptors. That each each sort of progression in technology has had a rather concomitant uh, lowering of the amount of human power it takes to complete a task. And over the past, you know, 200 years or whatever, the explosion of technology, pun intended in some parts of the history of the man, the men's, man's, humans, has made it so that actually the inclusion of human power in completing a task causes problems with efficiency. In other words, that you, from a cost to benefit ratio standpoint, it actually costs more with whatever, however you define cost, you can turn it into money or whatever. It costs more to have a person do it the way that they used to do it and actually 
causes problems to have people do things, I'll just call it by hand, then by virtue of using technology to do it. So to kind of summarize that, because of the development of technology, things that we used to do now have a cost when they used to have a benefit. And that cost of doing the activity ourselves has a delayed cost to health. So we have an immediate reward of, we'll just call it efficiency, and, and really efficiency of energy use, essentially, the human resource and the financial resource. <laughs> we, get, we get benefits of both. We get to retain human resources, and we, we have more financial resources, we'll just call it, because of the technological advantage. And if we do it by hand now, then it incurs a cost that has now a delayed, essentially I'll just call it delayed punishment to our health. Does that sort of loop that yeah. whole thing around? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like it just my, my thought as you were going through that is like the, the efficiency of, of man, if we were, it's, it's much less efficient if every, if every person at work were to walk to the grocery store after work to go get their groceries, people probably would not be as effective in the office if they were all, you know, okay, I've got a, I've got a 15 mile walk home. I got to make sure that I can detour four miles to get to the grocery store. Well, then with the creation of cars, that efficiency elevates, but then activity goes down, right? Yes. Yes. And you could also make the equal opposite argument of, would we have that sort of situation at all? <laughs> yeah. Otherwise. So, of so course. I like your, obviously your situation holds people have commuted since, you know, real estate costs existed, so to speak. Before that point though, like, we have water here. We have food here. We like, you could walk everywhere. And then the advent of the power multiplying capacity of the horse, so to speak, more horse powers, we can now change the distance. And so the, the communities we have built, we now have made dependent on the technological advances. So most of the way, most of the time, I think it, it, it creates an efficiency and at the same time has created a dependence. You could have just as easily done everything a hundred times faster within a smaller community with the same with the same increases in technology. Maybe I know very little about that stuff. I mostly just speak in principle here. So yes, I, I agree it, with you wholeheartedly. Yeah. Well, I think it, it does take me into my my next thought, and it's not exactly on technology, but it reading this reading your tweet about this it sparked my my thought. And I know this will take us off on a tangent, and I'm excited about it because Good. with my with the people that I tend to work with in, in physical therapy, I am lucky enough to be able to have worked with probably a dozen or more centenarians and probably hundreds cool. of people in their nineties and, and late nineties. Right. And in doing this, of course, I always, you know, you have to ask the question and it's probably a poor, poor question to ask, but always, you know, what's the secret? What got you to 101? What got you to 99 and, mm -hmm. and doing fairly well. Right. And what I think is interesting, and I would love to know your, your thoughts on this is, you know, being somebody who's very passionate about nutrition and exercise and physical therapy, I would have loved a lot of the answers to be, I had a perfect diet and I walked, you know, X amount of, uh, of, of feet sit down a day. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved the answer to have been that. Right. Um, yeah. I'll tell you my favorite answer in a little while, but it's funny because when it boils down to it, if I can boil it down to one word, um, from what I can observe as answers, the word tended to be purpose is what got okay. them 
to, yes. if I could boil it down to one word and, um, and of course shows its face in a lot of different ways. But, um, for me, that's kind of what I was, uh, like I said, on uh, observing on the outside is what I was able to kind of, uh, look into. So I'm curious on your thoughts on that and, um, maybe just on, on longevity in general. Okay. I, I have, yes, I agree with everyone involved here. I will point out or rather assert that I think very few people, very few people die of old age. <laughs> okay. Yeah. If we make old age a cause of death, which very few people do. And I think, I think generally speaking, somebody, somebody with enough statistical misogyny could say, okay, you died of getting old. Mo vast majority of people die of something else. And dying of something else, I think you would prevent more or less with your diet and exercise regimen. Mm, mm. And in that case, you kind of put yourself in, in a sort of metric black hole where how can you assert that the way you ate and moved had either, I'll just call it attenuated or lowered the chances of you getting those mortal conditions, allowing you essentially to die of old age, which we'll just call it 90 something, okay? And a lot of that, for, for a great majority of people, I think happens on accident more than it happens on purpose, and that tacit knowledge gets lost in the conversation. Yeah. In other words, the way that they moved, the way that they ate, the way that they carried themselves day to day, they have lived like that their whole lives insofar as they did it on accident rather than doing it on purpose, which limits their ability to communicate exactly what they did to someone, I'll just say to someone like you. Yeah. What they consider obvious, they do on a daily basis, every day, and have for decades, making it something, why bother even talking about it? So I think to, to your point, if you could strap a camera to that person's head for 30 years, it might give you a better idea and the whole have a purpose sort of thing, I do find endearing. I absolutely find it endearing. And I think if you manage to attenuate or to lower the chances of those other mortal conditions enough, that having, the pur having purpose, I do think, especially from a, a respondent conditioning standpoint, has a tremendous effect on things like your immune system. For instance, if you have a purpose, then you can effectively turn loneliness into solitude. And topographically, or topologically, the topo yeah, topographically, loneliness and solitude look the same. A lonely person looks like a, pers a, a person that, is, that has taken solitude. And the difference, I guess you can consider the difference, or some people would call, call the difference autonomy. I chose to operate by myself versus for whatever reason, I got forced into doing things by myself. And from a respondent conditioning standpoint, we can call it the placebo effect, we can call it respondent conditioning, we can call it purpose, we can call it many things, but basically you have physiological responses that you have conditioned to external stimuli. And it, it happens since birth and essentially works because of what we would call the placebo effect. So we now know, we now know that the placebo effect has, has an effect on the immune system, for instance. Like if you have an, if you get exposed to something that raises your immune system counts enough times, then 
exposure to something related to that thing, even if, even if it has nothing to do with the immune system, can still cause changes in your body. And that sort of stuff, I really do think it keeps people alive. And to me, the reason to live can kind of translate to, well, these aspects of my environment keep this physiology in my body going. Which then you can possibly come to the conclusion where if you took that person and moved them somewhere else to an alien place with none of that stuff, they might die pretty fast. And that might actually happen. You might know this data better than me, or I would, I would say that you do, that if you take, take an old person and slap them into a nursing home, I bet a lot of them die pretty fast. And a lot of parts of their environment that kept their physiology active went away. Yeah. And so you yeah. can look at that as sort of one thing of how the environment may actually keep the body ticking from the outside in. And uh, I have taken to that sort of, I suppose, viewpoint more and more. The more I, the more I learn about learning and physiology, et cetera, that effectively the body learns to stay alive. And we use the term purpose as a way to describe that sort of behavior. Yeah. Hopefully that no, and makes I think sense. A few, no, it does. And I think a few thoughts on that. I think one, I absolutely agree with your statement at the beginning of saying that, you know, a lot of those things that we could attribute to general increased activity nutrition that this person may have been living their entire life, they don't even necessarily think about that as being an answer because it is who they, who they are and how they've grown. Right. So yeah. I definitely, I definitely hear you on that and translation of the question and, what answer I get from that, of course, is, is up to the way I ask the question and give any details before. Um, and I do have, uh, it's, it's funny because as you were talking about, I've, I've heard you speak a lot on, uh, in the, in the past on environment. And I think that's a, it's a, obviously it's a huge, plays a huge role in, uh, in our day-to-day -day lives and longevity. And like you said, the different things that can happen to you. And whenever you were talking about that, my mind immediately went to a lot of, and it kind of backtracks into a lot of the things that we've are, that you just mentioned. A lot of the people that I see that live to these, not everybody, of course, but a lot of people that I see that live to these extended years are from a farming background, are 20s, 30s, 40s, where that's what you did. You know, that was your family's, you farmed and you woke up at five in the morning, went out there and you yeah. did, did the cows, the chickens, you went to school, you came back from school, you did some more farming and you did yes. that for years and years. And so that, and you always have more to do. Yes. Yes, yes. exactly. Yes. So that was, I, a, I got excited. No, 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 it's fine. I, I, please go on. I, I, that was just a, a thought that I had immediately whenever you yeah. said that about the environment, I just thought about, we obviously, there's not as many farmers now. So there are at least not as many people growing up in that, in that uh, community and staying in that community. Um, but that activity level that was just kind of ingrained in them without actually thinking about exercise goes back to that beginning yes. statement, right? Yep, agreed. And, and I would hazard a guess that does wonders for, for what we would now call metabolic health. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just the years and years and years of building up bone density. Now that person chucking hay bales probably has a lower chance of breaking something. You know, better than anyone, you break a bone, you die. Yeah. You break a bone, you die. Yeah. And you die for any number of reasons. Right. Really, you can say, right. like, if you break a bone, it will kill you. Above yep. a certain age, relatively low, I think in your 60s, maybe. Oh, the, the, stat is, the stat is insane. It's something around over the age of 65, if you fall and if, if you break a hip, your chances of all-cause mortality in the next year is 40-something yeah. percent. Yeah, if you get yeah. confined to a bed, you will yeah. die. Right. So I, I'm, I'm more like, if you spend that much time in bed, the bed will mm -hmm. kill you. 
Yeah. And then it just so happens that breaking your hip would land you in bed. But really, you can say sedentary lifestyle above 65 will kill you within a year or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. I feel okay saying something like that because yeah. does the broken bone kill you? No, laying in bed does probably. Mm -hmm. And then, you yeah. know, surgery and infection and all the other drugs, et cetera, et cetera, because that really helps. So the that if you take that sort of view, which I totally agree with, all of that stuff, I think, accounts for attenuating and lowering the, the probability of dying of stuff that kills people <laughs> versus dying of old age. You know, 50 years of doing that or whatever probably put enough put enough discretionary health in the bank if you want to sort of make this up that like, okay, I stayed active for 50 years and I've, I've built up this savings that I could now, when I chill, I can live off of it. Kind of. Yeah. Like I, I think bone density, muscle mass, uh, neurological function, a lot of that stuff, especially if you maintain even limited amount of activity, it, you can kind of really attenuate the losses. You can, it takes way less to maintain it than it does to build it basically. To build it, right. And, and so I really do believe that you put you you put function in the bank when you work for that much for that long, and at the same time, with you know we always have farming to do. We always got chores. Summer will come, fall will come, winter will come. Every eight weeks we have a change, and like you have different goals. You have the same goals, but you have different ones that rotate. <laughs> And so you get tons of variety. You give different sources of reinforcement from the environment. Your environment changes a lot. Although it changes in a cyclical way, it puts you in an intermittent pattern of reinforcement, to use fancy language. Basically, your jobs, even though you know all the jobs, your jobs change. And you have skill. So you have a lot of jobs, a lot of skill in a lot of jobs, and variety in the jobs you do. And from what we would call a mental health standpoint, that pretty much puts you off the charts for satisfaction. <laughs> I do a lot of different stuff that I do really well, and it, and it rotates at, at, a, at, a, at a random enough schedule because of, like, hyperbolic discounting. It gets really difficult to, like, assess the value of things in the future. It more or less happens at random and at a, and at a grade and at a grade. So that sort of stuff from a, from a mental health standpoint just goes forever. And so that leads into the next sort of – we can foray into something similar of – of, of the other people who managed to overcome the stuff that kills you and die of old age for whatever reason, I, I do think a lot of people choose the right parents and live correct lifestyles, obviously, that people who, who have skills and or careers or jobs or whatever you want to call it that they can do until they die, they live longer. Your purpose. Looking at a lot of professions... <laughs> A lot of a lot of therapists live a very long time. You can attribute that to a lot of things. I attribute it mostly to having something that you can do and get better at until you die forever. Uh, a lot of artists, if if you know stereotypes notwithstanding, if they can stay away from substances, including the ones that they use for painting, etc., uh, they can live a very long time. Comedians. Like legit comedian Mel Brooks, I think still like he he's, he's just like holy cow, this dude. So I think people in professions, relatively low risk, low barrier to entry, and very high skill. Like anybody can crack a joke, but we only have one Mel Brooks, yeah. <laughs> you know. 
So a lot, and, you know, st- doing therapy or helping other people like the Mother Teresa types, really the altruistic sort of, I'll just call it the altru- altruistic sort of professions, the teachers, et cetera, that, that work with helping a people. Even if you do the same thing, you help a, a lot of different people. A lot of different people express gratitude in different ways. Look at your job, right? Or your career path. And even though you use the same sort of skills, you have the idiosyncratic nature of every person, meaning you treat each person a little bit different within the confines of your skills. And you can, you can literally create a rather sort of addictive job. Although it, it, it helps us more than hurts us, it does keep you going during the lean times. When you first start out, it can get frustrating. And then when you, when you turn into a master physio or physical therapist, you can go way longer before getting a gratitude from somebody. Kind of like the, like as soon as you get that one person that just like they know you changed their life and they run up to you and give you a hug, like that'll keep you going for months and months. Yeah. And teachers operate the same way. And when you look at that sort of pattern of reinforcement, you teach yourself a couple of things. One, that you can, you can get reinforcement from other people or things outside of the environment instead of things like drugs or food or whatever. And it prompts you to get better at the skill over time, and you can. And that combines with all the other learning stuff that I brought up earlier with like, well, if you water a plant, you live longer. Same sort of premise where you now have skills and those skills transfer to a wide variety of people and environments and you can use them and get reinforcement and that keeps your disposition high, et cetera, et cetera. So I I do will add outside of the typical lifestyle things we like to discuss that you bringing up purpose, I think if you expand it enough has tremendous value and I more or less define it as something that, like a skill that you can do forever and continuously get better at. And if you have that, then I will bet a dollar you will live longer. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And I think <laughs> I, I see that a lot of people who just, they, they retire. And that's like what they're looking forward to in life is getting to that retirement age and retire. And they have nothing planned or nothing to do, no mm-hmm. skill that they will, or they had skills, of course, but those skills in their mind were ready to stop once that retirement day, yeah. you know, was started. So, uh, yeah. and I, I wanted to, to go back real quick, cause I, I loved your, your bank analogy with, you know, being able to bank up your, your quote unquote, you know, health points in in a way. And it reminded me of, uh, what I was going to tell you before is like my favorite answer to the, to the question of what's the secret of being in the nineties and hundreds is it was, it was my favorite answer because it was the the quickest. And I thought it was the, the wittiest answer is I asked a lady who was 98 and immediately off of her tongue, whenever I asked her what the secret was, she said, don't buy a recliner. And that was it. She left it. I thought, Holy shit. There's a lot to that, right? Like, I mean, of course there's people that have recliners and are fine, but it's the idea of, like you said, of that, those people who had, and I go into people's houses all the time and they're, they can barely make it from their fucking recliner to the bathroom. And that's where they, that's where they live. Right. And it's those, they've banked up no points. They have no health points in their bank system. So once that injury, that disease happens, they have nothing to push back on. And then just to survive, they're having to dig into those, you know, those dollar amounts and those dollar amounts eventually go to zero, right? Or we get the change yeah. and then it's just yeah. that change you're throwing a quarter at just to be able to get up and go to the bathroom. And then that's yes. all you got oh, for the yeah. day. Uh-huh. Yeah. You got like three bend overs and you use one of them to yeah. tie your shoe. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. I come in and I'm like, okay, this is what we got to do. And they're like, I, there's, I, what do you mean? What I, I can't, I can, I can't get up. 
but and, uh, yeah. okay, well, we got we got some other stuff to work on, right? But it's yeah, it, I, I love that the bank analogy because I can see so many ways that that could, like you said, you, you got three bendovers of the day, and that's about what you can do. And you know, mm-hmm. where are we going to go from here? Yeah. Yes. And I, I, frankly, I throw myself under the bus there as a deadlift specialist for years. I got I got three I got three good bendovers. I got I got one to tie my shoes. I got one if I drop my phone, and I got to save the third one for for the training room. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, you get, that's you get really superstitious as a power lifter. And so like, I will never bend over unless I pick up 700 pounds. So yeah, like yeah. it still applies to like, you, you only got a, you only got a few reps for the day. So you got to choose them wisely. Yeah. That's hilarious. And I've actually, I've heard that before too, recently listening to some power lifters and saying like, if you, you know, if you're focusing on the squat, like that is, that is what your day is revolved around is making sure that you can, that you get that squat in and everything else is like, how can I make sure I get to my squat? And make sure that I'm yep. at like I get ready to go. Yes, it, it, it just generates so much superstition, so oh, much, yeah. just is tremendous. There, is there a lot? Is there a lot in the powerlifting field? Uh, I, I think I think in any in any in any how do I say this? In any skill where you have a tremendous knowledge of how versus knowledge that, like you know exactly how to squat perfectly and you do it every time and you know very little about the physiology and mechanics and things of that, like in, in the biochemistry and all this stuff around exercise, then it makes it very easy to assign things in the environment before, during, and after the squat to the success or failure of a squat session. So if you have a sniffle, well, I missed it because I because I had a sniffle. If I hit a PR, I hit a PR because I had a good song on. Mm. And years and years and years of those reps, you have this like, I have to have everything this way or else I will fail the squat. Versus like people who know a lot of the biochemistry and the mechanics, like, dude, just like get in there and squat. Like you do fine yeah. wherever. Yeah. And, and the knowledge... The, the knowledge that people make fun of that book knowledge, I think actually helps defend against superstition. At the same time, the, the practical knowledge, experiential knowledge, whatever you want to call it, keeps people myopic enough that they can, they can get into the elite or freakish level of performance relative to the book nerd like me. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, you know, pro, pros and cons, and I will say it goes for it goes for any sort of job. Salespeople, tremendous. Base like baseball players got lucky socks. I mean, if you see the guy, if you've seen a person prepare for a deadlift, like one hundred percent superstition. Yeah. Do you have to do any of that stuff? No. You can just right. walk up and pick it up. And yeah. they have a ritual before they do it, and that ritual got shaped over years of well, when I pulled, I got it. Except it happens in the background rather than the foreground. Sure. <laughs> and so over the years, you build up this ritual you have before you lift. Yeah. Two, two things on that, too. I think like the, the ritual reminded me, I heard a, uh, a conversation the other day about, I think it was from Michael Phelps's coach and on what he does before every, before every swim and like what he does at the Olympics. And it was the exact same, you know, it was like even to the extent of like left earbud in first, right earbud in. Yeah. He doesn't, doesn't sit down on the table, flaps his arms a certain way. You know, squats twice, whatever. But it was that that ritual, um, like you said, the pros and cons, though, because something that uh, came across came across me uh, somewhere in the last few weeks was, uh, a, I believe it was a statement or a video by by your friend uh, Alex, Alex Hormozzi talking mm-hmm. about uh, routine. And I, I love this because I think for myself, I have definitely been caught up in the idea of 
the fantasy of a perfect routine and leading into mm -hmm. maybe the perfect day, we'll say. But um, what I love the way that, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this too, is the, the way that I interpreted and, and interpreted the framing of this is that if you rely so heavily on the routine, if something is slightly off on that routine, like what you said, for example, the sniffle, well, then you can immediately gets in your head and either that leads to a poor deadlifting performance or a poor speaking performance or a poor presentation rather than not worrying about the routine or understanding that something in the routine is likely going to go wrong or saying it will go wrong. That way, when everything does go perfect, you're like, hell yeah, let's go, let's go. I'm ready. And even if it doesn't, you're ready to go as well. Correct. Correct. So your use of reliability or relying on indicates, indicates liability versus asset. Most morning routines, if all of them, I think I will just venture, I guess, and say almost none of them have, have anything to do with the sort of work you do after the routine. It's probably fair. Yeah. Nothing. And, and Alex and I talk every Monday. And so we talk about this sort of stuff, every conversation we have. And uh, the, really the anti-routine from a more technical standpoint, I have it as a, as a superstition defense. If you could just get up and work and you can do that in any environment, well, then any sort of ritual acts as a liability. Yeah. And so he has things that do contribute to his work actually, or rather defend against distraction, like work and you work in a box and you have earplugs and you increase your airways. These things do have some superstitious component, of course, although you can keep that sort of stuff in your pocket. <laughs> Right. And, and they have actual, I'll just call it ergogenic sort of benefits. You get more done. You get, you get more out of your body having done it. And you can make similar arguments to some of the other stuff. Although I, I feel okay sort of defending and, and turning myself into a proponent of what Hormozy has put out in regard to his, I, I think he calls it the anti-routine or something like that. Like just get up and work. And, and again, I'll, I'll phrase it again and say that has, that has to do with superstition defense. Right. To me, the perfect morning routine, like it confuses me a lot. <laughs> I know, it just yeah. confuses me from really, I'll just call it from like a biochemical standpoint, from a cognitive standpoint, from a, from a behavioral standpoint, like you can make arguments, but really all the arguments just get way overblown by the, by the liabilities. Yeah. I'm doing something like this. So this is, I this is what my headphones, yeah. why even bother lifting? Right. Right. I have a couple of thoughts on that. I, I think uh, what I think it is, is, and I actually am intertwining this with something that I've, that I've heard you say, which I've taken, taken big into, um, recently is I think that a lot of times what people do is they try to emulate the success of others by their routines. And they think that that's a very easy, very, very easy entry point is to say, oh, Dr. Cashy does this for his morning routine. I want to be like Dr. Cashy. I'm yeah. going to do this and I'm going to add this and I'm going to, it's going to automatically make me a more successful, um, you know, uh, communicator, a more successful, you know, you name it down the line. Right. Yeah, Instead sure. of, and I, and I think that, like you said, the, uh, you know, questioning the, the morning routines, I think it's a, it, and I think it's a, something that people just, they try too much to, to add, 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 add to their current day instead of like where I, where I said, I intertwined what you said before, um, on a different call or a different conversation. I heard you talk about instead of add, add, add taking 
the taking a look at some of the things that you can subtract or some of the things yeah. that are causing you distress in your environment, things like that, that yeah. would allow you to have more time and more uh, thought to be able to kind of discover those things on your own of what makes you a better performer and what makes your life better. Perhaps. Yes. Perhaps. Yes. And, and maybe and I'm interpreting that wrong, but that's kind of, maybe I'm interpreting that wrong, but that's kind of how I interpreted it. You know, I, I appreciate, like, I agree with what you say, regardless. <laughs> I agree with what you say, regardless. I, uh, I lost a train of thought. So we talked to, so repeat with what you said, the, the last part, the, the um, last part, I was just talking about how, um, you, the, like having, instead of add, 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 add to our daily yes, life. Yes. Okay. Okay. That, that sort of tendency I think exists just, just by virtue of how you'll hear me say this a lot, just by how we learn stuff, right? We, we do things repeatedly because they had or have a benefit. Period, period, right. either then or now or intermittently, mm. we do things continuously because they have some benefit associated with them, either continuously or intermittently. And for that reason, it makes way more sense to ask the question, what more can I add? Because everything I currently do, either now or at some point, had a benefit. And it makes it really difficult to then, okay, what do I cut out in, in, in actuality, it makes it difficult to have that conversation because even though we do a lot of things that we know hurt us, they really hurt us at a delay. And so you could say, well, I could cut out all the time I watch TV and I have all this other time I can work. Well, TV has a lot of reinforcing components to it. You get entertainment. You get to sit around and do nothing when you do it. You get really, you just get rewarded for watching television hmm. immediately. And the delay of watching television happens at, at such a length that it does it does it does nothing except to add to the conversation of you making you feel bad at, about yourself. <laughs> and that means going about eliminating those sorts of things that you know cause problems in the long term but really have benefit right now. I think very few people talk in those terms that you, the royal you, we do stuff that we know hurt us because, because we get benefit from it right now and, and what hurts us comes at too much of a delay, which then raises the question of what do we do now? And then it turns into instead of eliminating, so to go to continue on the conversation we had before, because I learned stuff and correct myself too, is that vast majority of the time, substitution works much better than elimination. Now, from, the, from a conversation standpoint, it makes sense. We'll just cut out all the stuff that hurts you, duh. Oh, just, you don't want all those diseases? Just stop getting old, idiot. <laughs> and, and going from elimination to substitution gets you in a little more of an analytic frame of mind of what function does this behavior serve? What immediate consequence do I get from it? And what other behaviors can I think about substituting that give me a close enough benefit that also, that also help me to double or triple dip? Yeah. So yes, we agree. And I mostly just revise it to instead of eliminating most vast majority of the time to go about substituting. Right. No. And I, I think I, I can take that personally because um, it's something that, that I am, I am guilty of is I, I love, I love learning. And as you said, learning you, you're adding and whenever you continue to learn and you are excited about the 
results, whether those are short-term, long-term results that you got from learning that in the first place, you don't want to get rid of that. You want to hold on to that. You just want to add the next thing to kind of compound yes. on that and keep going, keep going. And for myself, I find that I, I stretch my bandwidth a little thin. And so then I do start taking away or make myself feel bad for those things. Like you said, like sitting on the couch for 30 minutes and watching TV with my wife. Right. And that takes away from, in my mind, the, or, you know, in, in certain times takes away from, well, I could be using that time to better suit X, Y, Z instead of Correct. allowing Correct. it to be a recovery time, a family time, you know, you name it. Yes. Yes. Do you have any kids? I have two. I have, I have twins that are a year and a half old. Very cool. I'll mention this anyway, because it seems like an okay age. Mrs. Cashy and I actually forego the TV watching thing. And we frequently play cooperative video games. Love it. Big video game and fan too. I, I, I will recommend that till the cows come home of something you can do at all hours and something you can do where you work together. And it, it just makes, it beats the crap out of sitting down watching TV. Mm -hmm. it, well, and I mean, yeah, I, I love that. I love that because I'm, I'm, uh, you know, before, before even, you know, my working ages, I was never a sit down and watch TV person. I'm horrible. Okay. At, I'm, I'm historically a very horrible movie watcher and a horrible person to hang out with during a movie. Cause I'm, I schedule like two times to get up during the movies to go to the bathroom. Cause I just need to, I need to move, but you know, TV shows I can do, but just in general, I would much rather do what you said. You know, my wife and I both play co-op video games. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with the most recent one we've played. We could probably get on a tangent here, but have you, have you heard of the game? Uh, it takes two. Yeah. Yeah, so we're we're in the middle of, of playing that game, and it's Very it's a great good. game. It has okay. a good story, and it's fun because you can play, you can you can have conversations about the story, and you can interact yeah. and things like that. Which is, I'm assuming, is what you're you know attributing the benefits of rather than just sitting down and watching TV, right? Yes, it, and depending on the game, it just a lot of the a lot of the things that you do depending on the game they they transfer to other areas of life too. So if, if we Desert and I play a game called Seven Days to Die. Oh, where, I, know, I know that one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So really stressful oh yeah for, for people listening seven days to die uh think about minecraft except with guns and zombies and seven days in the game translates to seven hours each day each day represents a each hour represents a day in the game and at, at, at the end of day number seven a horde of zombies comes to kill you and so you have seven hours to build a base and do all this other stuff and loot things and you you go into a randomly generated world and you can play multiplayer. And anyway, Desiree and I do that uh, as a date multiple times a week. We go through phases. So right now we play it. Sure. And uh, it, it does force a level of cooperativity and long-term planning and uh, designating roles and all sorts of other useful things that apply well outside of, of the video game sort of system. Right. And stress, you can, reward, you have to, yeah, I mean, there's correct. a lot to yeah. it. Yeah. How, how do you manage communication during stressful situations? And that has probably had, looking back now, has had the most transfer. So the game itself has a lot of jump scares, has a lot of very scary things that happen that raise your stress levels. And so to succeed in the game, depending on the settings, it depends on the communication you have with that person because we play permadeath, which means if one of us dies, we start the whole thing over. You guys are hardcore. Yeah. Yes, we are. <laughs> yeah, I love 100%. it. 100%. Like 100%. You only get one life here, so to speak. Sure. And so that forces us, like, because in a lot of situations, like you get into, like in a game, if you die and you know that you can just like, okay, go back to base and I can start where I started again, then, then what consequence does it have? None. 
And so yeah. if we if we've gotten to day 49 or whatever and we die, we start from day zero again. And that means that having a way to cooperate in stressful situations there helps us maintain our progress there and then has 100% transferred outside of the game. When super stressful things happen and we notice when other couples have super stressful things happen, they flip out on each other. Like we already, we already did that flipping out for the first 10 hours we tried to play this game. <laughs> and you know what happens? We die and we start over. And, yeah. and now when it comes to, to real life, those skills have just transferred in a, in a rather sort of serendipitous way on accident. Now, looking back, I can make it look like I did it on purpose. And since then, I've learned a lot about it because we've done it for years. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've just seen now, like, I think the type of game has that from a, from a generalization standpoint, like now Desiree and I operate really well around new stressful people, for instance, together. Sure. So again, we can go on a tangent about this for a long time. But yeah. really, like it makes it oh, made a tremendous yeah. difference. Well, no, and, and, it, and it translates. I'll make sure to I'll make sure to download Seven Days to Die, and, and maybe we'll do permadeath, and I'll let you know how my marriage is uh, at some <laughs> point. I'll, <laughs> I'll message you and let you know if it's still safe. Um, but I think too, for people who maybe aren't interested in video games or don't have consoles, I think I've we've found uh, similar uh, similar takeaways from like board games as well, cooperative board games or games yes. with you know you could definitely. There's a lot of yes, very complex correct. and um, story driven and cooperative ways that you can do board games too. Um, oh yeah, we've done yeah. board games. We've done drawing. Uh, uh, we also take turns. I mostly do it though. Like I'll read to her instead of watching yeah. TV. Yeah, and Love that it. that actually goes really well. It sounds strange, I think, to a lot of people, but really, like we'll kick, we'll sit down on the couch and I will just read to her. Right. I've heard that before. I think oh, it was. Yeah. Um, it might have been might have been an interview with Hugh Jackman talking about like him and his wife would read a book together in bed, like they would just take turns reading or something. Um, and so I don't think I don't think you're alone in that. Uh, and it's just yeah, it's just a good alternative good. to watching TV. Uh, well, and speaking of reading, one thing that I definitely wanted to get into uh, in this conversation was your ability and focus on language and doing the research in this has doing the research for this conversation has made me uh, something that I already knew that I wanted to pursue and being a better communicator and using language more appropriately in the ways that I can uh, relay my thoughts and listening to a podcast that you were on and you speaking of the importance of language. I wanted to uh, take it into a different realm um, where, and for me, I, and I'm sure you have to hack at some of this in, in the, in the field that you're in as well. Uh, I have to be able to break down the words that other clinicians and physicians use with patients. For instance, I have somebody who is 70 and I go in and they say, uh, my doctor says I have pain because I have degenerative disc disease. And basically no matter what you do, I have degenerative disc disease and I'm going to have pain. Yeah. Or one of my favorites slash of course, least favorite is I had a patient recently that went into the hospital and, um, they were having, they, they had, uh, pneumonia. They were, uh, if I remember incorrect, they were a smoker, uh, for a while had quit from for many years, but they had went in for just an, an acute pneumonia episode. And the doctor came in and said, your lungs are trash. And they came and told me that after. And I was like, shit. Okay. Well, Maybe not the way that I would have interpreted, you know, understanding the situation and the person they're talking with is a very vulnerable person. Right. And, and people take physicians words as, you know, as everything. I mean, they're, they're gods, you know, to a lot of people. And yeah. so, 
um, I'm interested in your, in your thoughts on that and, and, uh, maybe your experience in having to do the same. I know it was a lot and vague, but, well, uh, well so I, I like your story. I like what you said. What problem do you want to solve or what question do you want answered? So great, great question. Cause I, I, I got I got excited about the, uh, the, the yeah, trash yeah. long story, oh, I feel but it. I feel it. I want yeah. to make sure that we home in the right place. Yeah, no, of course. Of course. I think the, the question, the question that I want to maybe start with is your, the importance of language for you in general, um, being the, I guess, I guess we can go into this even with, with your, I guess let's, let's go into it a little bit deeper into like with your clients with your staff and coaches, the importance of words and how those words translate to people that you're trying to help or trying to assist. Okay. What question do you want me to answer? <laughs> um, we got closer. Yeah, I know. I know. Like I, so we, I did this to consolidate. So no, I know. Yeah. I know. I, 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 I appreciate, difficult question, I appreciate difficult it. Question. It is. And I appreciate yeah. it. And I, and I, I feel like, um, and I know that you're appreciating the, the, the me trying to get there, but I'm, yeah. um, and I think it's because for me, uh, if we can backtrack a little bit, hearing you speak on a podcast before about the use, the use of language and the ability to not use shoulds, um, you'll know, you'll know all the words that I'm trying to come up with, but the shoulds, the, the those sort of things. Right. And then masturbation. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So I would love for you to elaborate on that a little bit. And maybe that will help me get into where I'm getting more into like the health, the health side of things or being able to translate to patients or, um, you know, or clients. Um, but the importance of that and maybe where that switch was for you to be able to, to start thinking about that more. Uh, I will tell you that it pretty much smacked me in the face by Dr. Albert Ellis, who I would say pioneered what people now call CBT. Mm. So people know or talk about Aaron Beck and Ellis came same generation, although I think before Aaron Beck and took a far more philosophical approach, which put him into relative obscurity in recent years. And Beck ended up gaining fame, familiarity, et cetera, because Beck went into the clinical site and ran a bunch of, ran a bunch of studies. And CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, got put on the map, if I remember correctly, because they had a, a seminal study where they compared this, this therapy with the pharmacotherapy, the drugs. Mm. And it either equaled and or outperformed the drugs. I think which you're then, right. I think it, which yep. then propelled it onto the map. Mm. Now, Ellis took a took a far more philosophical, semantic oriented approach that that also stemmed from Alfred Korzybski, who started, if I remember correctly, the the school and or philosophy of general semantics, also faded into obscurity, and. He has a very strong focus on more or less the false dichotomy. So I've, I've, I, I take some of his principles, although I've changed them enough that I would embarrass him to say that I use his principles. So I take credit so I can also take the blame. I make the joke and say that, <laughs> that really 
I separate things into a vast majority of time, like the psychological binary and the biological continuum, where if you look at words like need, should, must, have to, from a language pattern standpoint, it has this implied or else. Like, I need this food or else I die. For instance, what does need really mean? <laughs> need really means I have this thing or else death. And should, must, have to, I should do this, you should do this. So Ellis has these three fundamental, people have these three fundamental beliefs that get wacky. Like I, I must be perfect. You must treat me perfectly well. And the world must, must also uh, give me results I want, essentially. So really me, you, and the universe. Mm. And if you have shoulds, must, have tos, or, need, or needs, with any of these three things, you have this sort of fundamental rule set that leads you to distort reality. And he calls it demandingness. And I also call it demandingness. So I totally appropriated that. So if you demand things, you probably demand, or, you, or by definition, my definition, his definition, you can only really demand in a dichotomous way. I must be perfect really means I, I have to, should, must do things this way or else I am trash. You are either perfect or trash. And when you start to have your demands, you state a demand that really just violates the laws of nature, right? right? Like, do you really have to be perfect? No, because if you did have to be perfect, you would have or you'd have died. So really, you just made this face noise, a rule that you have used language related to, for the sake of our conversation, we'll just call it uh, living, and when the results in reality start to deviate from these rules you make for yourself, which we will call demands, that you then start to dramatize. Things never work. Like, everything sucks. Horrible, terrible, awful. You start awfulizing, terribleizing, horribleizing, anxietizing. So you, you set this rule, I must be perfect. Okay, I got 90 out of 100 on my test. I'm an effing failure. I can't, and, and well, that, and so this never works. And then you start downing yourself. Like, again, I'm an effing idiot. I always fail the dramatizing and the downing. Mm -hmm. And so then you, again, you start downing yourself and then you start despairing. Why bother? <laughs> What's the point? So the, I call the four D's demandingness, dramatizing, downing, and despairing. I say them in that order because in my experience, they typically happen in that order, although they can happen in any order in principle. I think a lot of people have these implicit demands. And so it just goes right to dramatizing initially on the outside, so to speak. Yeah. So how does, how does one go about trying to quote unquote rewrite, or at least start to work into the f work into not saying those things or not working themselves into a dichotomy for every situation or every accomplishment or process. How does one begin? I understand it's a, it's oh, a process. Yes, yes. So I, I have a convenient answer for this. One of the most useful tools in my opinion ever in the history of the universe. Uh, and I call it the gut check <laughs> and you ask yourself three questions and answering all these three questions in the affirmative means you have something rational. And if you answer zero, one, two, or three of them wrongly, I'll just call it wrongly, that you now have a distortion on your hands, so to speak. And you ask yourself the question, 
Does this make sense? Does this follow? Or where does this come from? And then you ask, do I have evidence for this? Where does the evidence come from? And then you ask, does this help me now and later? And if you can answer all three of those questions in the affirmative, at the very least, you know, you have come to a rational conclusion about something, about something you have done or about something you want to do. Does that make it right or wrong? No. Does that make mean you will get the result you want? No. Although I do take the position that the more rational decisions you make, the more you stack the deck in your favor, that you raise the probability of getting an outcome you want by making more rational decisions more often things that make sense have evidence to support them and will help you now and later. And if you miss any one of those three things, then in my opinion, you make a, you, you run the risk of distorting reality, demanding things should be this way or else dramatizing things never work. It's horrible, mm -hmm. terrible, awful downing. I'm an idiot. You're an idiot. Life sucks. And then you start despairing. Why bother? What's the point? I can't stand it anymore. And you get a case of the, I can't stand it. Itis. Yeah. So if you, if you go through the gut check, honestly, and you check all three of those boxes, then you can have an, uh, an upsetting event or something that occurs and that deviates from your expectations. And yes, it will suck, but will you depress yourself or will you anxietize? Probably not. So I 100% agree with, yes, crappy thing. Like you can feel crappy about crappy stuff. We run into problems when we take that crappy stuff and we use it as permission to make ourselves feel even worse. And so I call that double trouble. You get anxiety and then you anxietize about your anxiety and then you get mad at yourself because you anxietize about your, and then you turn into this real mess. Yeah. yeah. And so I think if you have an anxious thing happening, then okay, you can feel, a, you can feel concerned. I call it concern. You can have a sense of duty. And if somebody dies, does it make sense to feel sad? Absolutely, a sad thing happened. Does that mean you depress yourself over feeling sad? <laughs> and keeping check with the sort of language you use helps you from spiraling out of it. Does it make sense that to feel sad that somebody died? Of course, what evidence do I have for this? Well, something that I really loved now vanished. Now, does it help me now and later to sit in my room and cry and eat pizza? No. Okay. And so that sort of stuff, like, well, does it help me now and later to do this, but do I have evidence to support it or does it make sense? No. Well, then I really roll the dice. So from, from like a business standpoint, for instance, the gut check tends to go the opposite direction. Well, this helps us right now and later. Well, do you have evidence to support it? And does it really make sense? Well, then you run the risk of developing superstitions. Does doing, does doing the zombie dance and flapping your gib and hitting your ear three times and smacking your lips before you do a deadlift or a high dive make any sense? No, it really just adds liability. So it goes both directions as far as the rational versus distorted approach to really describing your describing reality. I'll just call it. Yeah. Is that no, sort of? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a it's a it's a tactic and a method to to address any sort of yeah. negative negative language you have, you know, for yourself in, in different situations. I, I'm interested in in when did you make that? You know, you when did you make that switch into heavily focusing on behavioral change in, in studying that because in practicing therapy, I've noticed that a smaller percentage than what I would have thought actually has to do with the therapy itself or 
what, uh, you know, what I'm telling them to do, right. And how I yeah. handle the situation, motivate them, talk to them, handle this, handle the relationships in the home, things like that. Yeah. You have so many roadblocks to performing your function. Yeah. Yeah. And I will tell you that I got into studying behavior. I started studying psychology. I, I put a, put a line between them that existed in the sixties and people have taken it away. But I started, I started with studying psychology stuff for the very same reason you, you got literally frustrated. So I define frustration as anything that gets between you and what you want. Essentially. Does that mean it, it has inherent badness? No, it just means that I want to perform my function and these things get in the way. If you have a closed door, it frustrates you from getting into the kitchen. So what do you do? You open the door. Okay. Just to clarify that most people see frustration as like some negative feeling when I like, I, I consider it a discrete observable event. So I had these frustrations where I had the laboratory experience, the clinical experience, the book learning experience. I had all the formulas, Excel sheets, all this stuff. And when I started working with normal people, because I started in like working with Olympic athletes overseas with the primary language of Russian. So like they took directions pretty well. I'll just leave it that way. <laughs> that, <laughs> that my foray into working with the, the lay person. And I use lay person in terms of like, they have expertise outside of nutrition and fitness. Okay that I, I had this percentage of people that said, your plan doesn't work. And it just, I think at that point, you have professionals that go one of two ways to force the dichotomy here, because we all land in the middle somewhere. I force the dichotomy for the sake of our conversation to sure. clarify that this person is a lazy, resistant idiot who can't do anything right. How can I make this any simpler? <laughs> or what did I do wrong in communicating my directions? Mm -hmm. And one abdicates all responsibility to the client. I will change nothing. And I can, if you fail, you fail, whatever. I have, I have just enough people succeeding that I can have a functioning business and enough people succeed with my method that it feels like I do a good job. Say, say, say three out of every 20 people <laughs> or one out of every 20 people does an exceptional job. And that probably does enough to have you justify continuing the sort of method you already have. Then some people operate in the middle, then other people fall off totally. If you use a sort of, you know, left shifted bell curve kind of. You have a longer tail on the right side of the bell curve. You have just enough freaks that will operate under any conditions that it makes you feel like you have a good method. Essentially, okay? So if you wanna be the best coach, well then you find the freakiest athletes. You recruit them. And, and on the other side of the spectrum, you have, well, I know for sure that I have a strong fundamental understanding of what happens from a nutrition and physiology standpoint, and that my advice aligns with those fundamental laws of, of experimentation, science, nature, whatever you want to call it, which means that somewhere between me trying to translate this into directions for this person and then executing on those directions, we have some sort of blockage, whatever you want to call it. And it turned out that this enough people, few, they said, well, your plan doesn't work. And what do I say to that? Yes, it does. <laughs> and then like, okay, yeah. 
right? <laughs> You're just an idiot. Okay, thanks. So part of it has to do with me operating really as just an empath for, for my entire life. I have that as far as like, as far as I can remember. Uh, I have that going for me, I guess. I would, I would say in, in this day and age, it probably creates more of a liability than an asset. <laughs> and so that took me off the like, well, I know enough of this nutrition, biochemistry, fitness stuff that like does, does reading the latest paper that comes out every 38 seconds and trying to write an ebook on it serve me or my audience? <laughs> no, no. Which then raises the question of, okay, what else can I garner expertise in to raise the efficacy of the sort of plans that I do give people? And that led, that led towards psychology, which then led towards linguistics, which then led towards uh, behavior science. And so ironically enough, I've regressed in my study uh, more <laughs> yeah. and more. Right. And it has, it has turned more and more fruitful because of it, by the way, yeah. that, you know, all the way down to like, okay, I read a, I read a pigeon study yesterday and I got way more out of that than an entire textbook on, on whatever neurocognitive BS people have vomited out recently. We're like, okay, let's just write a book with normal advice and then throw dopamine in there every couple of paragraphs and call it <laughs> neuropsychology, okay? Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. Just the, any, I can go off on that, but really uh, learning how animals behave has really helped me learn how humans behave because I, I consider humans animals and stuff with, with the basic differentiator of language, which I think goes back millennia, but really how does language work as other than an operant behavior with respondent conditions still follows all the same basic laws of behavior <laughs> language yeah. does. And that has then uh, taken me to applied behavior analysis and all sorts of other things that, that study language, essentially language as a behavior rather than language as some like magical mentalistic psychic thing that only humans can do because they're human. Therefore we rock and everyone else sucks. Uh, and you ask yourself the question, Dalton, Dr. Main of what do my clients really have to know to, to succeed? Just the tiniest fraction of what I know. So if you have an hour with this person, how much of that time do you really spend explaining to them what you know about this condition they have? Yeah, very for it little. To, for it to work? Yeah. Approximately zero. Right. Which now means you have 59 or 58 and a half minutes <laughs> to interact with this person, to look at things that motivate them, things that punish them, uh, incentives, and other other things that raise the probability they perform the they perform the thing you want them to perform, and really, from that sort of standpoint, I think part of it also had to do to to wrap up your question uh, as as owning a business or running a business versus like working for a hospital or something. I think if you work for a hospital and you get paid either way, well, the it makes more sense to just get frustrated and call someone else dumb and resistant. <laughs> and when you run your own business, you have to say, okay, well, if I will get a proportion of people that, that will say that I'm wrong, even though I'm not wrong, I'm still wrong. Right. If I, if I provide them a product and they get less than satisfactory results, that falls on me rather than them. Yeah. So from a, from a professional standpoint, I actually think that probably pushed me over the edge faster because if I'd gone to work with a, at a hospital or a lab or whatever, I could just, okay, on to the next patient. That right. one's resistant. Get, yeah. Like you I said, know. yeah, it's going to get, yeah. 
it's going to get paid. You're going to get paid either way. And I think that's something that's, it's super important to note that it's a lot easier to blame that person and move on rather than being introspective and saying, hold on a second, even if it's, you know, four people out of a hundred that responded that way and said, your method didn't work. Well, maybe that's like you said, the way that I, uh, put that language out there or the way that I portrayed that, or maybe I was, I was all books and no personality or no relationship. And then that person, if I was an asshole and that person's not going to do what I ask them to do, or they're not going to care, correct. they're not going to, they're not going to believe what I have to say. Uh, correct. I think that's, yeah, it's something that I'm, I'm encouraged by and continue to try to, uh, make that a very, uh, adamant point of my relationship building with patients. Yeah. Imagine uh, you lost a month of pay every time somebody deviated from your directions. Yeah. Versus I get paid whether you listen or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, yeah, you it's a good point. You probably change your approach faster or change <laughs> verticals and have a totally different job, for instance. Right. So if, if you look at the incentives go both ways, how do I, if you ask the question, how do I get my patient to do what I want them to do? You've already lost. You've already yeah. lost. Yep. <laughs> well, and, and sometimes with the people who are sometimes with, with certain individuals and lifestyles and decisions that they've made up to their seventies or eighties, I know that it may take two to three visits of a of relationship building and establishing to be able to get them to start doing some, but I, I, I can sometimes be able to get that done earlier and, and later, depending on my ability to communicate and, and develop that relationship. But I understand that sometimes it will take a little bit more time to weave through some of that, uh, you know, in, depending on the patient. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. I, I do believe, I do believe more or less, a, you know, in, an optimum method does exist depending on the sort of thing you want to do. It just to answer the question of how and when did I transition into this sort of focus? Do you know enough to help the person that you want to help? And then you ask the question of, well, since I know enough stuff, what gets in the way of that stuff getting mm -hmm. into their stuff? And then you, you take a systematic approach at troubleshooting those things, which then, okay, in order to answer this question and resolve this problem, I have to now learn and apply these things probably in a different field. I will tell you that reading a physical therapist textbook on a client resistance will probably get you nowhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No doubt. You know, if you go to a chiropractor with, with a toothache, they will crack your back. <laughs> yeah. And people will fault the chiropractor for that, which I find silly but I think it still stands of what problem do you want to solve and then seeking out expertise in that problem area. And, you know, you can get second, third, fourth, fifth opinions, the beauty of books, and then do a common factors analysis and say, okay, I see these as the common themes between people diverging from directions from, you know, teaching autistic kids to working with people that have substance abuse problems to people in chronic pain. And, and of all these different things, they all have the same problem of deviating from the prescription and of the, of the methods that seem to have measurable improvements, which ones, what, what factors align with all of those methods. And then you can start getting somewhere as far as, okay, how do I approach a person in this sort of situation? Cause then you can approach them like a human rather than a, rather than a person who just an idiot, a lazy idiot who refuses to do what you tell them. Right. Just the epitome of, of, of sort of the medical personality. Yeah, absolutely. Or really what, just the uh, general personality, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing I just really quickly, uh, as we kind of wrap up, I wanted to touch on is, is you, you reminded me of this, which goes back to one of your, uh, one of your tweets, the, you had talked earlier about, you know, people 
all these studies coming up and throwing dopamine in here and trying to get these flashy, you know, flashy headlines or whatever. Um, it, it's funny because I, I you know, was looking through and one of your tweets reads a, a growing list of health enthusiasts with all the things going on in the world decided to mount an attack on beans. And it, it cracks me up because quick, quick aside, a quick story. I was doing a talk, uh, at a, uh, senior activity center. And part of the talk was about protein and some lady raised her hand and said, and uh, this is a, an elderly population. Of course, she raised her hand and said, well, what about, you know, people who don't eat, who don't want to eat as much meat, you know, are beans good? And I said, of course, beans are good. Another lady raises her hands and says, well, I heard beans cause inflammation. And I was like, oh gosh. Okay. Uh, and so I mentioned it in your thoughts and, and I, I go to this and, uh, what's frustrating to me, I guess, is in the, in the current state of of social media and things, it's very easy to pull whatever research paper that you want to, to yeah. clarify a statement that you want to clarify. Right. And then make a big mm -hmm. headline about it and sell to people yes. and things like that. So yep. I'm interested in your, in your thoughts on that. And I know it's vague, but I know there's probably, you could probably go, we could probably have a whole hour conversation on that, but maybe not. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. I mean, I think we could, I mean, I like yeah. you enough. Assuming you like me enough, I think we could go on yeah. for a while. Uh, I tend to have Socratic dialogues in a one-on-one -on -one setting. Oh, a lot of my conversations happen one-on-one -on -one or one-on-one -on -one in front of a group of people versus uh, like in a Q and a sure. sort of situation. And again, mm -hmm. the audience varies, but really I tend to go straight to the Socratic dialogue of, okay, tell me what inflammation means. And having a conversation over the language of, well, what problem does it cause? What problem do you want to solve? Does inflammation mean bad? You know, if you have zero inflammation, what does that mean? And so you can mm. you can get into the conversation of what problem does it cause? What problem do you want to solve? What problems make sense to resolve? Does it exist as a problem at all? And a lot of it just comes down to, well, we all make face noises we recognize, although they mean different things to everyone in the room. Yeah. And so when someone says, when a 90 plus year old who works on a farm or whatever, just stereotyping for the sake of conversation says, well, beans cause inflammation. Do you have a conversation with that person about interleukin nine? <laughs> sure. Yeah. No. Yeah. So that means this person to them, inflammation means something different than C-reactive protein or or a microalbumin or, you know, like, okay, got kicked in the liver. You know what I mean? So in a situation like that, it comes down to, well, when that person says inflammation, what does inflammation mean to that person? And then you can have a conversation around that. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of, a lot of pencil neck dweebs, myself included, hear the word inflammation to go ping. Well, actually, when really like the person knows nothing about inflammation the way you do. And so having the Socratic dialogue of, okay, I understand. Let's say they do cause inflammation. You agree, you validate. Let's say they do cause inflammation. What exactly does that mean? Oh, okay. I have an understanding now that like, maybe if you eat beans, it might make your knees hurt a little bit. Okay. Well, what sort? And so that gives you the opportunity to have a constructive conversation one-on-one -on -one in front of other people or one-on-one -on -one like this. And you can talk a little bit about how a little bit of inflammation helps you because of allostatic load and whatever else, if you want to use fancy terms or not, depending on how much you want to flex, that really it, it depends on how you want to persuade the person. I'll just leave it there. I also yeah. have another quip that I put on the Twitters that 
uh, evidence serves as the number one rhetorical apparatus. Reports mm. of evidence serve as the crappiest rhetorical apparatus. Mm. And yep. people confuse evidence with reports of evidence. Sure. Yeah. Or different interpretations of the same results. Beans, yeah. well, well, like, so I, I, I mentioned it's like, if I eat beans and 30 minutes later, I've got a headache and my knees hurt, then, then, then who cares about what all the studies <laughs> say about beans? Yeah, yeah. Because a study just means a report of someone else's evidence. Mm, I see. Yeah. And so actual evidence, meaning you have exposure to a stimulus and then an outcome at, a, at, at whatever delay, that means evidence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Studies have reports of evidence, yeah. which I consider probably the single lowest effective, the, the single worst rhetorical apparatus existing. And it looks like they work because people with authority will leverage them. Your physicians, your influencers, you whoever else. Really, they persuade people because of their status as, as with their positioning. And they just happen to flex a study. And that confuses people in thinking, well, if I have a study, then people will believe me. But really, the study works as the absolute worst way to change a person's mind about anything. Yeah, no, I love that. It's you true. literally report on what somebody else said over here. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so hopefully that, that makes sense. As no, far it does. As like, well, what, what problem do you want to solve? Do you yeah. want to have, do you want to have all of the other, I used to, you know, joke with a lot of the power lifters that I work with strength athletes. Like, do you really just want to impress all the other fat bald guys in lawn chairs at the local high school cafeteria next week? <laughs> you really want to do that with your life? Phil? Yeah. And if you say yes, then excellent. We'll do it. Right. Right. And if not, then we'll go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so I have to try to keep that sort of like, well, again, what function does this serve? What problem do you want to solve? Does it make sense? Do you have evidence? Does it help you now and later? Yeah. I love it. So hopefully I love it. that like, no, okay. it, it absolutely does. No, <laughs> it, no it absolutely does. No. Yeah. And I, I'm sure. Yeah. I love talking to you. I could talk to you forever, but I, I, before, before I give you a chance to be able to tell people where they can find you, um, a quick aside, I have recently gotten into, uh, you've mentioned Socratic, you know, one-on-one -on -one dialogue, and I've recently gotten into to reading some of that and have been introduced to it and I'm loving it. I'm actually currently reading the, the Tao of Seneca and, uh, just like the, okay. the letters. And so I'm curious yeah. just for my own interest, is there any, any, like, you know, any reads that you would recommend or things that I should check out in terms of, of Socratic reading? Um, any good first time digesters or anything that, uh, you know, are good. Um, give me, give me a minute here. No problem. I want to say. I recommend starting with autobiographies mm. of people known to use or what they, what people consider using the Socratic style dialogue. So I know Benjamin Franklin, John Stuart Mill, uh, really pop up first. Okay. No, that makes uh, sense. So instead of, instead of diving straight into the Socratic reading. Recite conversations they've had and also write to themselves in the sort of similar fashion mm. and give you an idea of like the, the Socratic, the Socratic dialogue one-on-one -on -one, given enough time can cause a ton of problems because people confuse the Socratic dialogue as a method of, of like getting to the crux of a problem. But really, the Socratic dialogue, it gets to your crux of the problem mm. rather than the crux of the problem. So it has 
a really tremendous effect one-on-one and people confuse it with like a way to get to the truth, but really it just has to do with like, how do you manage, what do these words mean? How do they affect your behavior? And does that, does it make sense? Do you have evidence? It doesn't help you now and later. I can like, I will plug that wherever I can. So, (laughs) so I will tell you, Benjamin Franklin proponent, John Stuart Mill, if I remember correctly, proponent, obviously Plato himself wrote, like wrote the Socratic dialogues. Those get a little, I mean, I have avoided those and I've managed just fine. <laughs> so yeah. the, I think of a second here. Got one more. Let's see. I can. So w- one author that I read religiously, uh, uh, now professor emeritus of law wrote actually like how to even Socratic dialogue. Yeah. Derek Farnsworth. Okay. That that gives a lot of abstracts. All right. So I'll throw my wife under the bus and say that she arranged these books in order of their colors <laughs> to make them look nice. And now uh, I, now I've I've lost I've lost yeah. everything I love, Belton. That's hundred percent something that my he, wife so would Derek do too. Farnsworth, Derek Farnsworth has a book essentially how to even Socratic dialogue, really short, pulls a lot of excerpts, talks about the Alinkis and ways of arguing, stuff like that. And then he will reference other people with biographies that I recommend you look into. It just gives you very interesting stories and then like just sprinklings of the philosophy. Mm. Like when you read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography or biographies or whatever, you'll get the Socratic stuff kind of sprinkled in and you'll have something interesting to learn about regardless. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, Find no, it does. It does 100%. Yes, I will. I will look into the autobiographies and to Derek Farnsworth. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. So if if you can tell everybody where they can find you, talk about maybe if you can just about uh, Trevor Cash and Nutrition and uh, give everybody a little plug. You can find me at Dr. Cashy on Instagram. Uh, I have some account restrictions for who knows why at the moment. So although it has, although I, I last posted a little while ago, I still respond to messages because I can. Otherwise, find me at trevorcashnutrition.com. We have all sorts of cool stuff. We will talk to anybody. I can only know if you ask. So you can Google my name. You can find me on Instagram at Dr. Cashy. Go to trevorcashnutrition.com, and we will have ourselves a Socratic dialogue. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, hey, Dr. Cashy, for real, thank you so much for this conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. All right. I know, I know everybody had to learn as much as I, as I did, I hope. And uh, like I said, I really enjoyed it and, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks everybody. Bye. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Before you go, if you did enjoy this episode, we'd be honored if you could hop on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. It helps us out a lot. Also, check out our sponsors and links provided in the show notes for some great discounts on products. Sign up for our newsletter at compoundhp.com. And if you have any questions, comments, or even if you just want to complain about my personality flaws, you can email me directly at dalton at compoundhp.com. would love to connect with all of you. Until next time, be happy, be healthy.